1: welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan and I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg.
2: And I'm Voldana Heirich, a cross asset reporter at Bloomberg.
1: And this week on the show, while well, the S&P 500 just capped a seventh straight monthly gain. It happened in the same month that Federal Reserve officials made it pretty clear that they're ready to start taking their foot off the gas pedal when it comes to the stimulative monetary policy that's been so important for this rally. How much of the rally actually has been due to that stimulus and how much was due to the ebullient investor psychology that accompanied it? And how should we think about what happens now? We'll get into it with a chief investment officer who actually helped start her own new firm just about two years ago. But first, Vildana, some trivia I just learned about you and this chief investment officer. Neither one of you has a middle name. Is, that's true, right? That's true. That's right. Yeah. Her name is Kim Forrest. Uh, she's the Chief Investment Officer at Boca
3: Capital Management. Kim, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And,
1: yeah. Kim, let's just start off. Uh, before we get to the actual nuts and bolts of, of your views on the market, tell us a little bit, bit about this firm. I know you just started it in, what, 2019. Um, it, you're based in Pittsburgh, right? Give us a little bit about how it all came about and and sort of what your strategies are.
3: Sure. So I have been a... Uh, PM for probably about, I don't know, 16 years. And before that, I started this uh, career as a sell-side analyst covering software stocks. Before that, I was a software engineer for 13 years. And I found this world because I went to an MBA program to become a salesman, essentially, of um software and services. And I thought I needed to get the vocabulary of business. So I got an MBA and instead I changed careers. It's so crazy because I found finance and I love it. So so that's how I got here. And I guess I'm entrepreneurial by nature because I've always kind of been itching to do my own thing. And in 2019, I finally took the leap. So I'm a equity analyst and we have uh, some strategies here that are based off of the core of what I believe, and that's growth at a reasonable price. I believe that the markets always reward growth, but um, you should be prudent about putting your money to work. So that's kind of um, what we do and we do it well.
2: And Kim, you and I have been talking for a couple of years now. One of the things we very frequently talk about is your pets and my pet. (laughs) So maybe you can (laughs) touch on that a bit, but I also want to ask you about uh, uh tech i know you and i have talked about tech a million times i think you like certain chip companies i think you like the 5g space maybe uh one of your main funds is upforming the s&p 500 this year so maybe you can tell us a bit more about your your strategy
3: sure and we'll leave pets to uh in a couple of minutes so so right probably because of my first career as a software engineer i see things through the lens Of trying to find really good companies that use technology really well. What I discovered um, when I was on the uh, software gig was that certain companies would kind of do, well, not so great things with technology that spend a whole lot of money. It was cool. It was. Cutting edge, but it didn't like do much for them as a company. So that's the kind of software I try to stay away from, right? Is, you know, just because it's cool doesn't mean it's good. So I'm looking for productivity. So that's the thread. Again, growth at a reasonable price, but companies that can really deploy technology well. And I also like companies that make technology. Um, Right now, I've figured it out that at the very core of any kind of software is hardware that runs on a chip. So I've been really investing in chips to the, uh, you know, I haven't really found a whole lot of software companies that I like at this point, but chips look cheap. And um, even though we started right uh, running this portfolio right at the beginning of uh, COVID um, chips have really performed well and they're constrained, but here's the thing we're going to need more next year and the year after and the year after and i think we're under um estimating how many chips we're going to need because of 5g bringing us internet of things to be finally a a thing in the in the corporate world
2: and i don't bring up pets just to bring up pets mike i don't know if you've read kim's annual reports but she she has included I think you once included a picture of your chickens.
3: Was it this past year? I think so. Yes, I have four chickens and uh, everybody works in this house. They lay eggs. They are all egg producing. Um, I haven't had to buy eggs from the store in a very long time. And I'm glad because my eggs are golden <laughs> and tasty and not like those <laughs> sad
1: mass produced yellow egg. I saw a picture of your chickens. I'm very jealous. I'm, I'm an aspiring backyard <laughs> chicken farmer myself, but, uh, m- my neighbors are not, do not share my aspirations. So I'm not sure if we could, uh, uh, make that happen. Maybe in retirement, I'll, I'll get, get to finally get those chickens. Um, Kim, I wanted to unpack a little bit about your approach to, uh, uh, looking at chip makers. Um, I've, i and I have a lot of questions about this. And, as is my style, I might pack them all into like a thirty part question for you. so so stand by for that. but but uh, but I feel like a lot of investors get intimidated uh, with the semiconductor space because there's so much going on. There's so much nuance. And also, there's so much sort of there's this like boom and bust cycle of of supply and demand.. Um, obviously now we're in this still in this kind of mismatched supply and demand environment where everyone needs chips. Uh, They're not making enough, you know, for car makers and other applications. But uh, let's start first with that idea of the, the sort of, you know, the, the the cycle for chip makers, which doesn't seem to always be correspond with the regular economic cycle. It kind of has its mind of its own Um, and the share prices kind of do their own thing as well. So, Is it, you know, do you try to time that cycle uh, to sort of get in and out of these names uh, along with it? Or is that is is that as foolish as trying to time the regular market as a whole?
3: That is an excellent question with multi parts. So here I'm going to take a shot at it first to the timing aspect. Um, I think we're always surprised, both to the upside and downside. We're rational people. We look at things and we say X, Y, and Z are going to happen, and then ABC happens, right? So I try to take most of the timing away from any kind of thing other than today's price. Like I have a little band of maybe 60 days where I look at something and go, "Ugh, that's going to come back down. I can wait for that, right? So that's my at a reasonable price. Um That being said, in the world of chips, there are definite pockets and you can, even though you're not a technologist, you can figure these things out. For example, there's one, um, uh, it's called Micron. It's one of the names we own. The ticker symbol is MU. And one of the things that they make is this stuff called NAND, N-A-N-D. And that is a way, it's, it is a chip, but it, it is really um, storage, right? It doesn't have to have electricity. You can put stuff on it. It's like those little cards that you used to have for your camera or your phone, right? That, that's, that is what we're talking about. So that definitely has boom and bust cycles and it's only because only eight companies make it. So when somebody brings a new line or a new uh, fab online, That kind of destroys the whole supply-demand curve, right? So then the chips get cheap because, you know, these are unbelievably expensive fabricating plants. They have to be running at full tilt the whole way or nobody makes any money. So they just keep shoving them out the door. And it's kind of commodity, now, a couple of things. First, not all NAND is created equal. Some are, is getting faster, better, stronger than others. Um, so that is kind of adding some discrimination to your ability to pick a better company from, you know, it's no longer commodity. But the second thing is... We are so quickly moving away from older storage devices like spinning disks, and certainly we don't put anything on metal tape anymore. Remember those big tape rooms where, okay, yeah, that's gone. That's not a thing anymore. So because of that, I think we're going to kind of flatten out, and we're going to have boom-let cycles, not boom-and-bust cycles, right? So, Because I I do think we're just – we have so much data that it has to go somewhere and it's going on these NAND devices, which are now going into um, uh, you know, enterprise storage areas. So that's thing one. Thing two is you can discriminate across the uh, makers of chips to high tech, which is like your Nvidia, right? Because they're doing very, very fast chips. For graphics cards for gamers, but also for Bitcoin mining, and I say that with a smile. Bitcoin mining and uh, AI. So you know you're going to pay a premium for those chips. So that is probably not going to go in a boom and bust cycle, unless, well, they maybe make cyber uh, 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 currency, you know, illegal. That might that might impede that but um, that's probably not your biggest worry. Anyhow, so, right. So there are things that you can kind of try to avoid, but then again, I don't know, sometimes things happen and the demand goes right back up. So, you know, I like to have always some exposure. So that's kind of the Miss America answer, right? (laughs) Something for everybody.
2: Kim, can I ask you how you're thinking about supply supply chain issues? Because I've actually been reading some reports uh, this week, maybe over the last two weeks or so, where more and more people are thinking that some of the supply chain problems are going to be dragging out for longer and longer potentially. And I know CHIPS is a big, big part of this, but how are you thinking about the big picture?
3: Sure. Well, I'm going further and further out the timeline because I think there are going to be... Um, supply disruptions. And a lot of it is because a lot of the actual, especially CPU chips are being made in one central location, and that is Taiwan. And I strongly believe that um, especially Taiwan Semiconductor is just going to have to move some of its production around the world to reduce its risk just for no other reason. And I believe other chip makers are going to Kind of have to move around the world. So, why is this something that we're discussing? Because I think it, it gives you opportunity. You can go a little further away from actually owning chips to maybe owning things like um, we own software that helps you to de- design chips. So, you can do that. You could invest in the companies that make the machines that make the chips, right? And I encourage people to think about that because I think demand is going up, but so is um, you know, risk remediation. So they're going to have to build these fabs away from off of Taiwan into other areas of the world. And that will drive a whole lot of spending that you can take advantage of because there's relatively few makers of the things that make chips.
1: Yeah, with all the sort of nationalism sweeping the the world and, and even the supply chain issues we've seen, it seems like that is something you, that you must be preparing for in the future is this, this kind of, you know, big, Uh, electronic manufacturers bringing chips production in-house and, and, you know, people trying to uh, produce their own fabrication plants, make their own fabrication plants, like even in the U S that's, that, is that a real, is that really where the industry is going? Do you think, Um, or is it just kind of being hyped that way?
3: I think it's being hyped that way, but I could see centers around the world, like in probably tax friendly and resource friendly areas and 75% of Intel's chips are still made in the U.S. So I think that is always going to stay that way, right? But I could see it maybe moving over to, I don't know, Ireland, because, you know, they've been a friend of pharma. So why not be a friend of tech? They're they're just really good about allowing people to come in and they know how to handle that. So, So I think that there could be these pockets around the world of technology. And, you know, it's not perfect where, you know, Belgium has its own you know chip making plant you know and so does Luxembourg. I mean I think that's getting kind of crazy, you know, too too small. But I do think having all of the uh computing of the world being made in one area is not the smartest thing. And let's take geopolitical out of it. They have earthquakes there. It's it's just not super smart, right? Yeah. But Kim, let's get to all the
1: all the various things I promised in the introduction here, which I I, uh, I promised our listeners you will explain with great authority. Which is, you know, we've had this this long ferocious rally now. I mean, we call it a seven month rally. It's, it's you know, it's really longer than that, eighteen month rally. Just those seven consecutive months, and now you know we do sort of all. I've gained the confidence that the Fed is. Uh, you know getting ready to to start taping uh, tapering asset purchases i wonder you know how important was that, in your opinion, to the rally? Uh, and does tapering matter, given sort of, uh, you know, that reopening uh, trend that's going on with all these people with, you know, swollen savings accounts? Now, to some degree or not, you know, maybe not fully ready to take those cruise ships, but at least ready to go out and eat and and maybe, you know, uh, do something besides sit on Zoom calls and watch Netflix all day. You know, is is tapering a, a, a sort of a, a, a boogeyman that we don't have to worry about, given all those other forces in, in the real economy?
3: I'm not usually a fan of, oh, I don't know, collective government thought, right? Like, I'm an American. I'm, you know, independent. I'm a hippie. I'm whatever you want to, you know. But I think the Fed has done – exactly the right thing in these last 18 months. And, and we're going to get to that answer about how it's affected the markets, right? So the thing it did was bring rates down immediately back to that zero, like, sorry, quarter of basis point close enough to zero. We call it zero interest rates, right? And then they did, they understood from the 2008 timeframe that to really make sure that interest rates stay low, you have to do these bond purchases. So they've been doing that. Now, I think what Powell's theory is this, and this came through so clear to me, or maybe he was just talking what I believe, is you have to get people back to work, all of them that can. And that is his focus, not on inflation, but on getting people back to work. And that is going to make it palatable to be weaned off of the bond purchases, because I don't believe that interest rates will shoot back up, right? And I'm talking when I talk interest rates, I'm talking the 10 year. So the 10 year isn't going to go like above 2 in a minute and a half after they start or start tapering, right? But I think in stock prices, we always look at PE, price over earnings. So right now we're at high PE, right? Where we are paying more For that stream of cash flows. So we have to be willing to pay more for these companies. What we need to do is have the earnings grow. So the PE falls, but the price doesn't fall. Does that make sense? I'm trying to do math on radio. So it's really tough. But you know, this is a division problem. And you don't want to make the price change all that much whenever you're raising interest rates. And I think Powell is trying to guarantee that companies will have more earnings if the economy's back to more or less full speed. And that's why he's been judicious about not cutting these uh, the bond purchases before this because he's seen these, uh, I don't think he's clairvoyant, he's just been overly cautious and been paid back with all of the variant kind of noise in the system. Does that make sense?
2: It makes sense. And I have I do have a follow-up in uh, in that I've read a couple of reports, again, reports, <laughs> I spent all my time reading reports and notes, but a few of them this week said that we're back in a bad news is good news environment. I know the ADP number disappointed this week, and, and that's exactly when I started seeing some of those notes. So I'm wondering if, if that makes sense to you, if, if potentially we could be in another bad news is good news environment.
3: Yeah, I mean everybody loves low interest rates. Everybody on Wall Street, let's put it that way. Except for the banks themselves love wall, love low interest rates. And it's because it gives us the freedom to continue buying those cash flows at elevated ratios, right? So we're paying what, 37 times forward earnings for Microsoft right now, which is, you know, huge. But if their earnings can continue to grow while interest rates fall, then their price shouldn't fall.
1: You know, uh, Kim, before we get to uh, our craziest thing segment, I also wanted to talk just briefly about um, your sector neutral strategy, which uh, I know is doing well this year, uh, uh, outperforming the the S&P at least, um, which obviously is doing well this year. Talk to me about sort of what is the the appeal of going sector neutral? I mean, my guess is that there are certain investors who want to be exposed to growth, but don't want to be overloaded with tech. Maybe is, is, is that, is that it in a nutshell?
3: It, it is. And I mean, I, it, I, kind of, when I came up with it, I was trying to do risk remediation because it, uh, the strategy was made. Um, we started running it for another advisor and, you know, doing it for their clients and, Uh, Boca as a sub advisor, so they wanted more growth, but not like scary growth. And I said, sure, we can do this sector neutral thing, which will force my hand as a portfolio manager to maintain, you know, uh, alignment with the all of the sectors. Why is this important? A lot of people who are running money will say things like, "I hate energy. I'm not going to have any energy." And then when energy does really well in a year they get their clock cleaned, right? Well, who cares about the manager? The people who are holding those assets get their clock cleaned. And, you know, that's tough. What it it really is a great little way to take a little bit of risk off the table. But what we're doing is this, is we're, um, the S&P 500 is the benchmark. The S&P 500 has a lot concentrated in those top five names, right? So we're going further down into the uh, market cap, you know, lower market caps, and the great thing is, some of the stocks I've picked have been scooped up by larger companies, and it's been great so far, right? Because you know, now I have to find another smaller company for healthcare because one of my um, stocks is getting taken out, and it's a double in eighteen months. I'll take that all day, so that's kind of reinforcing. Now you have to be a good stock picker. You have to pick, you know, good stocks and, you know, companies that other companies want to buy. I mean, that's not why I'm doing it. I just said, "Oh, this is somebody with an unusual product line and looks uh, poised for growth." So, you know, that gives you an opportunity to participate in that cycle of uh, smaller companies being bought by larger companies. And so far, it's working. Yeah, it's, it's a
1: fascinating phenomenon that I, I feel like a lot of managers of either small caps or all caps type of funds, they never say they explicitly are looking for takeover targets, but that always ends up being sort of the, a, a big source of their, their positive returns. I mean, I guess you drive yourself nuts just trying to, to look for targets uh, exclusively.
3: Well, well, you can't. But what I've found is if you get quality, like everybody's looking for the same thing. I don't care if it's an investor or a company that wants to grow and they say, oh, we'll do, we'll buy instead of build. Okay, I mean, that's what every company is doing. If you can find that team of good managers that are making products that customers love, and this isn't just regular like retail customers. Uh, corporate customers can love a product too, and if you're good at making that product, you are a candidate for takeover. And um, yeah, and it's
1: a good it's a good gig. And, and, and uh, another good gig, Valdana. I'm really struggling for the segue here, but uh, let's go with that. Another good gig <laughs> is the crazy things segment. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. I, I that's a good gig for you, Valdana. So. You start us off. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week?
2: Well, before we get to what the craziest thing I saw was, I wanted to remind everybody that everybody can give us a call at 646-324-3490. Leave us a voicemail and we may even play it on the show. Another way to get your craziest thing on the show is to send me a Twitter message, which, which somebody did earlier this week. And so I want to give Dr. At, at Dr. Einstein, a shout out. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, and that is, uh, of and course, been... his
1: real name, I'm, I'm sure. That is absolutely.
2: It is. <laughs> Doctor is his first name. Einstein is his second name. Uh, and I say Stein because there's, there's a little underscore, a little dash between the Ein and the Stein. So. Forgive me. But um, he and I have been uh, exchanging messages on, on Twitter. And he, and he so he sent me uh, something about some of the market matters that he's seen in the NFC, NFT space. Once again, I know we, we covered that last week, but uh, he said there's an alternative earlier version of the Ether Rocks contract that lets anyone mint a uniquely numbered rock for free. The crazy thing is that anyone can mint basically any uniquely numbered rock, and there's wild speculation on the value of those rocks, which don't even have a picture or NFT token. So these Ether rocks, they've been these hugely popular NFTs. There's supposed to be only a 100 of them. And so he was flagging to us that there's this code. There's, There's something we're going on with the code where you can actually... I, I suppose make new copies. I really <laughs> hope I'm doing this do justice, <laughs> but you can create more of them. And some of them don't even have a picture attached to them. And these things are like, just like with everything else in in the NFT space, they're they're everybody's going nuts over them. Basically, I think
1: I feel like Kim hears all this and she just thinks Nvidia, Nvidia, Nvidia. <laughs>
3: No, I'm thinking back to my youth and thinking pet rocks. <laughs> like, that was, that was a, a thing. thing. And it, it you can't escape it, man. It just, it, it mutates through time. Gosh. I think that was the idea behind Ether Rocks. Yeah. yeah. It okay. was, it
2: was the, was it in the 70s and the 80s? It was. It
3: yeah, was 70s. Pet yeah. Rocks,
2: right. So I think that's the inspiration.
3: Mm. That's pretty good.
2: Anyway, it's fun uh, to cover the cover this uh, NFT stuff. There's just something there's always something going on over there. But I want to give Dr. Einstein a shout out. Thanks for sending that yeah, in. Th-
1: thank you, Dr. Einstein. If that is, in fact, your real name. All right. Well, Vildana, what's your crazy thing, though? You can't rely completely on Dr. Einstein here.
2: I can't, but I try to top his and mine is like really far out there. So I hope you like it. But it's uh, it's uh this story that I saw. It's about Flamin' Hot Mountain Dew. So PepsiCo owns Mountain Dew. They have this brand new flavor for Flamin' Hot Cheetos flavored Mountain Dew drinks. It was immediately sold out. And so I think on the internet, there's speculation over, you know, when they're going to restock and when people can buy this sweet and sour Mountain Dew again. But it also made me think of this story that's been making its rounds recently. It's about the guy who claims he invented hot Cheetos. Oh, I don't yeah. know if either of you have seen yeah, this yeah, one. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah, his name is Richard Montaignez. He He even wrote a book about it. And there's, I think, some speculation over how much it, he was involved with, yeah. with the creation of, of Hot Cheetos. He was a, uh, but a anyway, janitor or
1: something, right? And he, he took it to the, he
2: was, yeah, that's right the, that's the, the name yeah. of the book. It's, it's called uh Flame and hot, the incredible true story of one man's rise from janitor to top executive. Eva Longoria is making a movie about this. So oh, my God. be on the lookout for that. Anyway, that's my craziest thing. We have this public company involved. Uh, PepsiCo owns, as I said, Mount, the Mountain Dew brand. And, uh, I don't know. I don't know if I'd give it a try. I love Hot Cheetos, but I don't know if I'd give the Mountain Dew a try. Yeah,
1: me neither. I don't know. I, maybe I would probably try it, but uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll see how how big of a success that that one is. I, I have my my doubts on that one, but
2: maybe I can get my hands on it. We can have a yes. taste test next time we're in the office yes, together.
1: Do you do that? You first. You first. If you if your face doesn't crinkle up, then maybe maybe I'll try it. But
2: um, no problem. You got I, it.
1: I'm gonna do mine really quick, just because I wanna. I wanna get Kim's in too, but um, you know the GameStop uh, drama never ceases. I remember us. I think we joked uh, last year even about, well, if it stays at these levels, uh, maybe they'll add it to the S and P 500. Uh, and everyone chuckled, ha ha ha, like it's ever gonna stay at these levels to, to warrant that. But sure enough, the Journal, Wall Street Journal, has a story out this week speculating on whether or not. GameStop could be added to the S P 500. It's way bigger than some of the smallest members of uh, the index, but doesn't uh, doesn't meet all the criteria, including uh, you know having profits in the last quarter. And I think it has to have a sort of a net profit over the the trailing four quarters. But we'll see. Stranger things have happened, I suppose, than GameStop uh, joining the S P 500. And Matt Levine had a good argument, uh, a good column arguing, well, you know, should the committee actually keep this out if it meets the qualifications just because everything everyone thinks it's crazy? And he suggests a weird S&P index uh, to capture all these stocks and, and a normal S&P index. I I don't know. I think there might be something to that. Sector neutral and weirdness neutral, Kim. What do you think? Is that the next big thing?
3: <laughs> I I, I kind of like that. I would like a weird stock index. I think we I think somebody should put it together. How about us three? Let's get <laughs> together. Because, you know, if Dow Jones can do it, we could do our own thing. Right. We could just have like, what are the weirdest stocks in and they could be penny yep, stocks. Yep. Um, I remember years. I don't know if this will count as my weird thing, but years and years ago um, when I worked at the asset management firm before the one I started, um, I had to be the girl that answered, or the person that answered all the clients' questions on, should I invest in this? My brother-in-law told me about <laughs> this, right? We, we all know that, that kind of, it was a great yeah. beat. I was so glad to get off of that. Okay, anyhow, the weirdest one was a company, now this was a penny stock, truly it traded at like two cents or something like that. It was growing plankton. And then getting carbon credits for releasing plankton into the ocean. Can I make this up? <laughs> no, I cannot. And I said, no, this is not a good idea. I don't know. Like, I don't know who would pay for it. I, I, you know, there were no carbon markets at that time. or, And I didn't even know, like, they didn't explain how the the credits would work, like who was giving them credits and where they could be sold. You know what I mean? There was a big missing thing, but I just think just growing plankton, I think that could end you up in the weird stock index.
1: Absolutely. I I would, I would give a high weighting to that one. I think for for sure, regardless of the market cap. Yeah,
3: yeah, sure. Big (laughs) tanks, like in somebody's basement or I don't know, where do you grow plankton? I think it has
1: to be in a basement. Absolutely. That's where you got to start. If not a garage, yes. maybe I don't know.
3: Yes. No, no, that's that's too exposed. The plankton <laughs> like it dark. Yeah, I don't know. It's too Silicon Valley. Yep.
1: Yep. <laughs> I, here in Metuchen, we have a major krill uh, uh, harvester has a has a headquarters there. Krill's a big thing for the fish oil tablets. So, but at least yeah. that's yes, that's a better uh, use case, I suppose, than uh, than uh, or carbon credits for. Uh, that's pretty good, Kim. I don't know yeah, if that was your official craziest thing, but Thanks. I like that one. Thank you. And with that, I think, Valdana, I think that's all the time we have. What do you think, Valdana? I'll allow you to anoint the winner of this week's craziest thing.
2: Can I pick myself or no?
1: Absolutely not. No. Yeah. Yes, you can. Oh. Then let me no, think about you, it. You, I'll consider I, it. <laughs> I, I've, I've picked myself for approximately 800 podcasts in a row, so I I guess you can pick yourself.
2: You did. But Dr. Einstein, again, uh, he actually, he sent me a couple of different topics. All of them were in the NFT space and all of them were interesting. So maybe, maybe we can hit, uh, crown him right. the winner.
1: Dr. Einstein, it is. Although I like the plankton, I got to say. I'm going to do a plankt, Sorry, plankton Kim. NFTs. Uh, I, I think it's going to be my thing. <laughs> I'm going to work on that. <laughs> Kim Forrest, thanks so much for your time. Go take care of those chickens. Thank you. What goes up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pelt of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time.